welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. God said to Noah and his sons, I am giving you my blessing. Have a lot of children and grandchildren, so people will live everywhere on this earth. Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, left the boat. Ham later had a son named Canaan. All people on earth are descendants of Noah's three sons. The book of Genesis Chapter 9, verses 1, 18, and 19. Contemporary English Version. Hello! Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm Victoria Kay, here in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. Today, we're going to continue our discussion about Noah and the Flood that's described in chapters 6 through 9 of the book of Genesis. We've been talking about Noah for a few episodes now in part because the story is so well known. But despite the story being so well known, the story is quite often misunderstood. R.D., would you like to say hello to the Anchored by Truth audience and give us a quick overview of some of what we've been talking about? I'd love to. And uh, hello to all the Anchored by Truth listeners. We're glad you can join us today. I'd like to start by reminding everyone that the Bible treats the story of Noah as literal history. As you mentioned, the story of Noah is often misunderstood in popular culture today. Frequently, the flood story from the Bible is regarded as either just another ancient myth, at worst, or at best, it's sort of regarded as a good teaching allegorical morality tale. But that's not how the Bible presents the story at all. The Bible is very clear that at one time, over 4,000 years ago, widespread wickedness in the world made it necessary for God to destroy almost all of the land life on the earth. And as we heard in our opening scripture, God restarted, after the flood, the human race with Noah, his three sons, and their wives. So that's one of the big points that we're going to talk about today. At one point in earth's history, there was a gigantic bottleneck in the human population of the earth. Hundreds of thousands or perhaps millions of people were all reduced down to just a population of eight. Therefore, if the story is true, which we certainly believe that it is, the effects of that bottleneck should be perceivable genetically today. So we're going to talk about that in a little bit, along with a second phenomenon that emerged from the flood event, and I like to call this phenomenon the story of the story. Hmm, that sounds slightly mysterious, but also intriguing. But before we get too far along into the story of the story, let's start off by looking at the final part of Crystal Sea's Life Lessons with a Laugh series on Noah. This life lesson reinforces the historical reasonability of the ark's design that comes to us from the Bible, especially the fact that the ark was designed with the strength that it would need in a hostile environment. Okay, let's listen to you and Jerry unearthing, so to speak, one more lesson from the story of Noah and the Genesis Flood. 
What in the world are we doing up here? I thought... Tut-tut there, my wind-blown wayfaring workmate. We haven't even introduced ourselves to the audience yet. Oh, sorry. Yeah. It's just I barely made it in here through all the snow. Well, Crystal Sea pals and partners, as you can tell, we've once again changed location to conclude our series on gifts to glean from the biblical saga of North Star and the Ark. It's Noah. I'm R.D. Fierro. And before you go there, I'm... Jerry. Jerry. Ooh, wait, did you? How? It was right there on the front of the parka you just took off. Anyway, while Frosty the Jerryman gets himself settled, you need to know we're in a scenic log cabin high in an alpine setting. Today, we want to think about the wondrously wrought work of wood and willpower that Noah's wood rightsmanship wrestled from the woodland so that his family could persist to exist till the mists were dismissed. Hey, hey, hang on, R.D. You got something going there. Do what you just said. Persist. Do it like you just said. Persist to exist. Yeah. Persist, persist, till the mists are dismissed. All right. Feel it. Persist to exist till the mists are dismissed. It's got a vibe going to it. Persist to exist. Till the mists are dismissed. I don't know if that's the vibe I'm feeling with it. Try it again like you first did it. Persist to exist. Till the mists are dismissed. Now, a little more fluid. Give it a little more motion. Persist to exist till the mists are dismissed. Roll with it. Persist to exist till the mists are dismissed. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, feel it. Feel it. Jump in there. Persist to exist till the mists are dismissed. Persist to exist. Come on, I want to play are dismissed. Persist to exist till the mists 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 are dismissed. That's it, dude. Persist to exist till the mists are dismissed. And that's cool and all, but why are we here? And so far away from the beach we were on just a couple of days ago. Look around you, Jero Frost. This log cabin is a perfect place to experience the offendwicity of how strong structures built out of wood and pitch can be. I mean, look how calm everything is once you came in from the breeze outside. Breeze. That wind was blowing snow into body parts I didn't know had openings. And there you go. Think what conditions must have been like on the outside of the ark. You would have needed a terrifically tough craft to withstand the terrifying typhoon and torrential tides that would have been thrusting rubbish and wreckage against all sides of the ark. Hmm, never thought about that. Kind of surprised you would. So what you're saying is that it's important that the Lord told Noah how to build the ark as well as how big to build it. Now your fritters are frying in the fat, my fine friend. Wouldn't mind having some fritters right now with a light dusting of powdered sugar. Zucchini fritters up! Don't turn your nose up like that. You could stand to skip a few carbs. Not my fault if all that snow reminded me of powdered sugar. Focus, Gourmet Jay, focus. In our earlier lessons, we learned that the Ark's design was not only the right size to hold all the animals, but also that it had the stability it needed in rough seas. All right. Where is your floppy rudder going? I mean, where are you steering us now? 
always the same destination to any land where the Lord leads. In the case of the ark, we're not only concerned about its size and stability, but also its strength. The Lord told Noah to make the ark out of gopher wood and cover it inside and out with pitch. While scholars aren't sure exactly what kind of wood that was, many think it was a form of cypress or cedar, the part about the pitch is truly amazing. Do tell, my oily instructor, do tell. Oily? Hey. Oh, oh, I get it. Oil, pitch, yeah. But no. In this case, the pitch wasn't made from a petroleum or tar base, but it was probably a combination of some form of tree sap or resin mixed with charcoal made from downed trees. Pitch was made like that for centuries and used in the production of ocean-going ships. Hmm, well, that would help stop leaks. The pitch not only helps seal the ark against leaks, but remember the Lord told Noah to coat the ark with pitch inside and out. Modern tests of wood walls coated with a product similar to the biblical pitch show that it not only makes the wood leak-proof, but it also makes the wood much more impact-resistant. Well, at least early on, there would have been a lot of wreckage and remains being tossed about in some pretty rough seas. Now you're seeing the forest through the trees. The Lord is not only in the deluge, He's in the deliverance. True that. Makes me feel all snuggy warm inside, like I've had a big cup of hot cocoa with a generous pile of apple fritters. <laughs> Lightly coated with powdered sugar. Well, Gourmet Jay... Your affection for appetizing Epicurean edibles always appears when your insights abound. Hey, what's that noise outside? Snowmobile from the ski lodge just over the ridge. I took the liberty of booking my own passage to the place where a filet and gourmet array are on display in a warm chalet. Room for two? Of course, are you? Uh, are you? Are you ready to ride? The world can be cold, but you can be bold. The Lord's plan will unfold when his hand you hold. Again, Mobile J, you have successfully traversed the trail to the top of that mountain of biblical wisdom. The secret is to hold on tight to the pilot so you don't fall off when he goes round the bend. Well, that's it from Jerry. Uh, wait. Me, R.D., and the whole Crystal Sea Snowmobile crew for today. You got it right. Of course. It's on the back of your parka, too. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where we're not famous, but our boss is. Okay, there were two big surprises in that lesson. First, you got Jerry's name right. Not once, but twice. And second, you pointed out that a detail as seemingly insignificant as God's direction to coat the ark with pitch actually helps confirm the truth of the entire account. Well, the fact that I got Jerry's name right might be a surprise, but the value of adding the pitch to the ark is a detail that a lot of biblical observers have noted. And there's a good article that gives more detail about the pitch's role in shipbuilding on creation.com. And that article is entitled, aptly enough, The Pitch for Noah's Ark. So in the last three life lessons, we've covered the fact that the biblical description of the ark makes sense in the real world. As described in the Bible, the ark would have had the size to carry the animals and their food. It had the right dimensions to remain stable in rough seas, and the nature of the wood available in Noah's location 
combined with the coating of pitch would have produced a very strong vessel. All of these factors help increase our confidence that the biblical story is a true story. But you said that today you want to talk about two things. First, you want to discuss the genetic evidence of the fact that there was, at one point in history, a major bottleneck in the human population of the earth. Second, you wanted to discuss the story of the story. What in the world do you mean by that? Well, let's start by thinking about other kinds of stories, especially the kind of stories that eh, old guys like me like to tell. Uh-oh, this is starting to sound scary too. Not really. You'll like this illustration. Let's suppose that there was a high school athlete, and we'll call him Your Majesty, who was a baseball player. And one year, Your Majesty hits a single that drives home the winning run in the game. And then Your Majesty's team goes on to make it to the playoffs, in part due to that win. Well, that's the kind of story that Your Majesty is likely to repeat many times during the rest of his life, right? Well, if Your Majesty is like you... Exactly. If Your Majesty is like a lot of us, he's going to tell that story a lot of times. Every time he meets a new neighbor, goes to the barber. Yeah, the story is going to be repeated a lot. But will it always be told in the same way? Or maybe it might grow a little over time. You mean by the time Your Majesty is in his 40s, now the single has become a double or a triple? Yes. And after Your Majesty's retirement, it's now a grand slam, and he hit it with two outs and a full count in the bottom of the ninth. But you get the idea. Stories don't always end up where they start out, even when there is a completely true story to begin with. So it should not be surprising to us then, with an event as catastrophic as a biblical flood, that Noah's descendants, as they began to repopulate the earth and move around, that the flood story would go with them. And over time, as Noah's children and grandchildren moved, aged, changed, had children of their own, the original story will also have moved on and changed. Some observers have counted almost 200 variants of the flood story around the world, and just about every culture on earth has one. What are some of the best-known variants? Well, one of the best-known of the variants, and probably the one that most closely tracks the biblical account, is the Babylonian flood narrative. Now, in the Babylonian narrative, their Noah is called Utnapishtim. Utnapishtim is warned by a friendly god in advance that a great flood is coming, and the god orders Utnapishtim to build an ark to save not only his own family, but also a group of representative animals. In the Babylonian story, the ark finally comes to ground on a mountain called Nasir in a mountain range northeast of Babylon. Now, similar to the biblical account, Utnapishtim sends out a dove, a swallow, and a raven to check out the conditions after the ark grounds. Well, finally, Utnapishtim and his family are able to emerge where they offer sacrifices to the gods. But in the Babylonian epic, the gods are famished because they couldn't receive altar food while the floodwaters were on the earth. Quite a difference from the God of the Bible who is completely self-sufficient and never has need of anything from the hand of men. Yes. Well, because of the extent of the similarities between the biblical account and the Babylonian account, some observers have suggested that the biblical account arose from the Babylonian. But this seems very unlikely given some extremely significant differences between the two. 
such as? Well, such as the design of Utnapishtim's Ark. In the Babylonian account, the Ark was built as a perfect cube with six decks. Now, it goes without saying that in complete opposition to the stability of the biblical Ark's design, a cube-shaped vessel would roll and capsize quite easily in open waters, especially rough open waters. Such a vessel could never have remained upright in the roiling seas that would have been present in the initial flood conditions, and any passengers of such a vessel would have, well, likely been beaten to death, literally, even if the vessel itself had continued to float. No modern boats from kayaks, canoes, or open ocean-going vessels ever use a cube as a basic design shape. It's just not practical on the open water. Furthermore, the Babylonian account contains a lot of dramatic details, but says nothing about specific dates, whereas the Bible is very specific about the details of time. Noah was 500 before he had children. He was 600 when the flood started. It rained for 40 days and it took 150 days for the water to recede. The ark rested on Mount Ararat on the 17th day of the seventh month. On the 27th day of the second month, the earth was dry. I mean, it's almost like God was filling in a day planner with the dates that he did things. And even though there is uncertainty about how those dates might translate into the Gregorian calendar we use today, 3,000 plus years ago when Moses first wrote the account, those dates would have been well understood. Yes. You know, there's a popular tendency today to doubt the veracity of a historical account if we can't see how it immediately fits into the reference marks that we use in today's world. We think that if we can't assign a precise Gregorian date to an event, well, some people are going to deny that it's possible that that event could be true. But this obviously doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, The Gregorian calendar only started to come into popular use in 1582, and there are still countries on the face of the earth that don't use a Gregorian calendar. Now, when you think about it, the majority of the world's history occurred well before the Gregorian calendar, our current calendar in our culture, ever took effect. That sounds interesting. It is. Ixloshoshitl. Easy for you to say. Yeah, no. Not so much. Anyway, Ixloshoshitl was an Aztec native historian who wrote that the world had lasted about 1716 years after creation before it was destroyed by a great flood. Now, this is fascinating because this particular figure is only about 60 years different from the 1656 years which you would get from the Bible calculating the date of the flood from the ages in the genealogy presented in Genesis chapter 5. So that's just a fascinating little tidbit that the biblical calendar, in fact, was very accurate when it came to telling us when the flood occurred. Well, that is a fascinating coincidence, if that's what it is. Have you come across any other tantalizing tidbits? Well, there are some truly interesting hints that either the Genesis story and even Noah's name have been preserved in surprising ways around the world. As most people know, the traditional Chinese language uses symbols or characters for words as opposed to the Western alphabetic way of writing. Well, the Chinese character for a large ship is a combination of three what are termed radicals, which individually those radicals mean boat or vessel, the number eight, and the symbol for mouths or persons. So, remember that the Bible says that eight people were saved from death by the ark. Noah, his three sons, his wife, 
and his three daughters-in-law. So it's really fascinating that the Chinese character that describes a large ship is in fact a combination of three radicals that would actually harken back to exactly what the Bible tells us about how the ark preserved humanity. Now, this is particularly fascinating because a lot of scholars date the existence of the written Chinese language to the general time frame of about 1,200 years or so before the birth of Christ. Well, that's about the same time that Orthodox Christian scholars believe that Moses wrote the book of Genesis. And there are some scholars who actually believe that the characters of the Chinese language predate the existence of a written version of Genesis. So that would mean that the Chinese character for large vessel, for large ship, would have been derived from a completely independent source, not just an early version of the biblical book of Genesis. So one distinct possibility for the appearance of this particular Chinese character's origin is that it just harkens back to the original flood story. With respect to the preservation of Noah's name, the Hottentots of South America believe that they are descended from Noah and the Hawaiians report a flood from which only Nu'u and his family were saved. So there are just these little interesting tidbits from cultures around the world that all seem to have, let's just say that they're at least very consistent with the biblical account. Those are intriguing details. But you say that some of the variant flood narratives also point to distinct differences with the Genesis narrative that lend more credence to the historicity of the Bible one. Yes. And just a couple of quick examples before we close today. An Ojibwa Indian legend from around Lake Superior tells of a great snow that fell one September at the beginning of time. Well, that snow had fallen because there was a bag that contained the sun's heat until a mouse nibbled the hole in it. Well, the warmth spilled over, melted the snow, and produced a flood that rose above the tops of the highest pines. And this drowned everyone on earth except for an old man who drifted around in his canoe rescuing animals. There is another Native American tribe, the Havasupai, who attributes the carving of the Grand Canyon to a catastrophic flood down the Colorado River. And this catastrophic flood occurred when the god Hokomata unleashed a tremendous rainstorm. In this same legend, a more benevolent god, Puke'e, put his daughter in a hollowed-out log to save her from the monstrous current. After the flood receded, she crawled out and became the mother of all humanity. So it's easy to see that there are bits and pieces of the biblical story, the true story, that are preserved in the myths and legends of the flood variants that have started to appear all around the world. All right. That gives us some good insight into what you mean by the story of the story. But what about genetic evidence you were referring to that demonstrates that at one time there was a major bottleneck in the human population? Well, we can see the effects of the bottleneck that resulted from the reduction of the human population from hundreds of thousands or millions down to just eight people. We can see potential genetic evidence of the flood through what is known as the mitochondria DNA. Now, most of the DNA in a cell is found in the cell's nucleus, but there is a limited set of DNA that is not found in the nucleus, but in an organelle that is more or less the power plant of the cell, and that organelle is called the mitochondrion. Well, mitochondria DNA is generally only inherited through the female line. In other words, we get our mitochondria DNA from our mothers. 
So as such, the mitochondria DNA distribution within the world's population can give us insight into our female ancestors. Well, genetic studies have shown that there are three main mitochondria lines of DNA present in the world all around the world. And evolutionists actually refer to these lines as M, N, and R. Now, when this information from genetic studies first arose, evolutionists were surprised at the lack of diversity present in the mitochondrial lines. But this mitochondrial DNA evidence is entirely consistent with the Bible's flood account. Remember that all of the people living on the earth today are descendant of Noah's three sons and their wives. Well, the lines of mitochondrial DNA that are present today could only have come from one of the four women on the ark, Noah's wife or his three daughters-in-law. But the Bible never tells us that Noah had any daughters. The Bible mentions that Noah only had sons, so Noah's sons would not have passed mitochondrial DNA down to their descendants. The mitochondrial DNA after Noah's sons would have come through Noah's three daughters-in-law. So it is very reasonable to conclude that the three main mitochondrial DNA lines that we see present on the earth today trace back to Noah's three daughters-in-law. So... The main point is that there is another point from scientific observation that is consistent with the description of the flood account. We've covered a lot of ground in the last few weeks, but we haven't talked yet about the animals on the ark, and I think you want to begin that discussion next time. That is a very important point. Sounds to me like a good time for a prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer for Christian missionaries who carry the good news about Jesus to people and cultures all over the world. A Prayer for Christian Missionaries Father of Redemption, you are a powerful and loving God and our ever-faithful tower of refuge and strength. You are a God who takes pleasure in rescuing lost sheep and in bringing them into your kingdom. You are the God of the ends and the means. May all the earth sing praises to your name. Lord, the Bible rightly asks how the lost can hear of the salvation available through Christ's life, death, and resurrection unless preachers are sent to proclaim the gospel. We know they cannot, and today, A great many of your faithful people continue to leave their families and homes to travel to remote corners to preach your message of hope and good news. Today, we want to pray for all these missionaries and to thank you for your provision of them. Lord, we know that many missionaries preach the gospel in lands where your word is not welcome. In fact, In some lands, to speak about you brings a sentence of death. We know that there are many places where government leaders and authorities will exercise the full power of their offices to oppose and persecute your messengers. Therefore, we pray for special protection for all those who preach in these dangerous countries and places. We ask that you watch over these missionaries protecting them as they travel and minister and confounding the efforts of those who seek their harm. 
We also pray that you give them fertile fields in which to plant your word, which is the seed of true life. We pray that you would open the hearts of those who hear the word. Give them the courage to accept Christ, even as they risk their lives to do so. Bring leaders out of the converted so that ministries and churches once begun will continue to grow and expand. Provide the resources the missionaries and churches need to sustain themselves, whether it be Bibles, educational literature, money, or resources for daily living. Show us how you would have us help and serve in bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. While not all are called to go or preach, we know that there is a way that all of us can contribute. Help us to be persistent in our prayers and make us fervent in our desire to see your word spread and your kingdom grow. Christ commanded that his word be spread until he returns again. So in his holy name, we pray for his kingdom and his messengers. Amen. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time. And we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.